My name is Sam, I'm one of the student ministers here. Please do keep that passage of Luke's Gospel open in front of you. I'm going to turn to it myself. You know, Josh asked such a good question at the start of uh, this morning's meeting, didn't he? He asked, why do you come to church? And of course, there are all sorts of good answers. Um, but uh, we need to ask, why is it that people have come to join us recently? Arlinga and Irene and Chris and Margaret and Linny, why have... Uh, they come. Why is God adding to our numbers? And also, uh, two more we heard about this week coming to Christ for the first time, joining this family at Wall Street. Why is it that we come together in a place like this where it's stinking hot and there's no breeze? By the way, you've all got one of those outlines. Uh, I think you can ditch that and just use it as a fan. That's going to be of great use to you. But why is it that we come together like this? I tell you why. It is because. We want to know the forgiveness of sins, isn't it? Sure, there are other reasons too, but we want to know that we have forgiveness of sins from Jesus and that it's worth living for him today. For we learnt last week, if you're with us, if you weren't, you missed out, you can watch it online. We learnt last week that Jesus, God on earth, has authority to forgive all sin, my sin your sin, past, present and future. He has authority to do that. What a man. What a man. And forgiveness, it means burdens lifted, debts cancelled, guilt gone. From Jesus. What a man. What a man. And so this morning, this passage follows on. What does a life with Jesus look like? What does the life with Jesus look like? We're going to be asking, and who gets forgiveness? And how can we receive it? Well, let's dive in, shall we? Uh, Luke records for us just a little snapshot of Jesus' life. It's there in our Bibles, but if we were around 2,000 years ago in Israel, we would have seen this man. But why is it that Jesus records this for us? Uh, The location is Galilee. The scene is a dinner party. The main figure is Jesus and Levi. And by these names and locations, uh, Luke is showing us that this is a real event in real time, real places. You could have gone and checked it out. Jesus really was a historical figure. He did this. What a man, what a guy. But why is this event, of all the events, why is this event in our Bibles? Wonder if you thought that Jesus must have met lots of people. Why is this meeting with Levi in our Bibles? And why does Luke go into such detail about the feast in Levi's house? Well, read with me from verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. This is an extraordinary response, isn't it? To leave everything, to get up and follow this man. What a man, what a guy. You see, turning to Jesus, it is something we should do. But we need to see it's something we get to do. We get to turn to follow Jesus and be with him in a feast. For life with Jesus, it's a great feast. Is that how we think of life with him? 
Well, think about it. We should. For in the Old Testament, uh, right from the start, we're told that life with God is full of enjoying him and celebrating his goodness. Think about it. The Garden of Eden, God with his people, surrounded by a world of goodness and food, life-giving food, was on the menu in abundance. The prophets also spoke of this, a time when God would send his Messiah. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of fine wine, of food rich and full of marrow, of rare wine well refined. What an event. Or Zechariah 9. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. See, a life with Jesus, it's a feast. It's a feast. But, but, oh dear. Oh dear, look at what some people have turned it into. Verse 33. And they, the Pharisees, came to Jesus and said to him, The disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. What killjoys. What killjoys. And Jesus gets to the heart of their response in verse 34. You see, Jesus and his disciples feast, but the religious leaders fast. These religious figures see life with God as a fast, one great big denial of all things good, and so much so that, frankly, the worship, the love of God, has just turned into another task on the calendar and a boring one at that. Restrictive, grey, sad. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 34. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? When I was getting married, to my wife actually, uh, she was in charge of the important bits of the planning, which was the food. Of course, it is her main priority, and it's a good priority if you're ever planning a wedding, to make sure that when guests come, feed them. It makes for happy guests. It's true. And at the heart of the wedding, as well as the food, was my lovely bride, who had done all the, all the good bits beforehand. But in Jesus' day, it was the bridegroom who was the centre of attention. He, after all, invited the guests. He ordered the master of ceremonies to manage the wine, the food, the guests. And when God promised in the Bible to come to be with his people, he described it in marriage terms, feasting faithfulness forever and Jesus says that he is this bridegroom God come to be with his people feasting faithfulness forever that he is God come to enjoy the blessings of life with his people with you that's why there's celebration that's why the disciples are feasting the people are feasting for Jesus is with them God is with his people not a fast but a feast but the disciples had Jesus' physical presence for a time only. And Jesus says, verse 35, there is a day when fasting is appropriate. A day of mourning. No one feasts on that day. 
a day of mourning, and that's because he, the bridegroom, will be taken away. What does Jesus mean here? Jesus was foretelling the time when he would be taken away from the disciples, a day of sadness, the day when Jesus would be led away to die on a Roman cross. That day the whole world wore black. A day of sadness, a day of mourning. And yet, Christians call that day, that day, Good Friday. Why? Because Good Friday led to the first Easter Sunday. Death could not halt him, the grave could not keep him. Jesus rose again, never more to die, but to raise up and rule in heaven, the eternal, the great feast. And that's why for Jesus' people, the life with him, this life of feasting is guaranteed. Now I know, you know, it doesn't always feel like that. But we, if you like, we need to see that if we're part of Jesus' people now, if you like, we, we have the entrees, we have the starter. It guarantees and whets our appetite for the feast of life forever with Jesus. The best life, not a fast, but a feast. And who is at this feast with God? Who is at this party with Jesus? It's our second point. It is for sinners, not saints. Who is Levi and who are the guests? Well, verse 27 again. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Levi is a tax man, a tax man. He might euphemistically say that he works in finance, but we all know, they all know who this guy is. And Luke wants us to know what kind of guy this guy is. He's actually been building up to meeting this man for the last uh, chapter or so. So we met Jesus meeting a leper, then we met a paralytic, and now a taxman. Each one an outcast, hopeless, helpless. And Levi is the lowest of the low. Levi the low. More toxic than a leper, more hopeless than a paralytic. For as a Jew collecting taxes for the Romans, it would be like selling his family to give it to an intruder. Scum. Hated vile, Levi the lowlife. And who else is at a party? Well, who do lowlifes hang out with? Lowlifes. Sinners. What a room that must have been. Can you imagine who would have been there? What that room would have looked like? Well, also the Pharisees. Now, of course, they wouldn't be actually inside. They wouldn't be seen dead with those kinds of people. They'd be watching on, sneering at this feast. Remember the Pharisees from last week or from Eleanor's talk? The Pharisees were a class of people known for, well, known for their goodness and known for their religiosity. They were law-abiding, conscientious. You'd actually want them as your neighbour. They'd make a great housemate, no doubt. They took the Bible seriously. They're the evangelicals of the day. And so we have here two types of people. We might call them saints and sinners. Sinners and saints, Levi's and Pharisees. Let's pause. Who do you think you're most like? What would other people 
say you're like. Well, let's move on. But who is Jesus going to hang out with? The sinner or the saints? Now, we've read this before, so the punchline is spoiled. But this is a shock. Imagine you're seeing this for the first time. God comes down, and he's feasting with sinners, and the Pharisees are shocked. They and their scribes grumble, verse 30, at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What a scandal. What a scandal. It's not the well-presented good people that Jesus feasts with. It's the sinner. It's the Levi's of this world. It's the Levi's that enjoy the feast with Jesus. It's uncomfortable on so many levels if we think about it, isn't it? For you and I expect that Jesus wants to see saints, don't we? Really. But honest with ourselves in our heart of hearts. Isn't that right? No. Then why do many of us struggle to admit to ourselves and to others just what we're like on the inside? How can I say that line? Because I know that too. We find it hard to admit what we're really like. And why do we hide who we really are? Could it be that because we secretly, subtly, harbour the belief that God wants us to be seen as good people? See, the Pharisees were quite happy to see themselves as good people, and more than that, they wanted other people to see them as good people. So how do we recognise the Pharisee person today? Well, for them, they're healthy, everyone else is sick, they're the person never admitting sin, the person never saying sorry for the things they've done. They spot the faults and sins in others a mile away, but can't recognise their own. They're like the person who believes they're well and have no need for a doctor. But look, verse 31, Jesus is the doctor for sinners. Verse 31, those who are well... They think they have no need of a doctor, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Everyone knows the sick need a doctor, but not everyone knows that the sin sick need forgiveness. But Jesus has authority to forgive sins, which is why Jesus came for sinners. Life with Jesus, you see, is good, it's great. It's a feast, not a fast. For sinners, not saints, but how? How is it that the sin-sick can feast with God? What's well, our third point? By receiving a cure, not a cover-up. Jesus said in verse 31, Those who are well have no need for a doctor, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. Now, the only major surgery that I have ever had was when I was playing rugby and uh, well I suppose it was after I played rugby uh, but I was on the field uh, the school field and I was playing with some mates messing around and I don't remember what happened but I do remember coming up from a tackle or a scrum or something like that and my finger was dislocated broken in three places at an angle like that and I looked at it and I guess I was 11 and I thought 
It's not supposed to look like that. And when I showed it to my dad, he said the same thing, which was reassuring, and he did something about it. It didn't take very much to see what was wrong. What Jesus in Luke's gospel has been showing us all along, if you like, holding up the x-ray to our hearts. You see the leper, the paralytic, Levi. It's like he's the consultant doctor. He's saying, do you want to know the problem? Have a look at the x-ray. Have a look at the heart. See what's wrong. Sinners need the cure of forgiveness. We've all tested positive, you see, for sin. But the good news is that Jesus has power and authority to forgive us. There is a cure. And how do we receive that cure? It is by, maybe surprisingly, it is by repenting of our sin. Some medicine is hard to swallow, isn't it? You'll know that if you've been up with a crying toddler and you're desperate during the night just to, just take it, just take it. But we all know that repenting of our sin is even harder sometimes, don't we? It's humbling, it's painful, it's embarrassing, it's shameful. But, but here's the thing, being real with God, confessing our sin and turning away from it brings the healing of Jesus' forgiveness. Turning away, that's what repentance means. It means a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of life. It means to turn from disobeying God to obeying him. It's what Levi has done. Now, perhaps you're here, it's great that you're with us, but perhaps you think, you've never actually done that said, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. From now on, I want to live for this man, Jesus. It's great that you're here. Keep listening. Keep listening on. Others of us would call ourselves Christian. We've done that. Well, we still need to repent of our sins. You see, for the way that Jesus describes repenting here, it means to enter into not just a one-time repentance, though it is, but it's to enter into a life of repentance in which we keep on repenting of sin. Perhaps you feel a failure. Those things in your life keep emerging again and again. You're not the person you want to be or should be. Well, Jesus calls us to repent again and receive the cure of his forgiveness. And to help us know what repentance is not, Jesus gives us three parables. Two, three stories, parables, to help us see what repentance is not. The first parable is in verse 36. You see, repentance is not a cover-up. Verse 36, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it onto an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Is he giving us tips for haberdashery, advice about sewing? The answer is no. No, he's continuing to speak about repentance. And what he says is that our lives are like the old garment with holes torn in it. But what won't work is by just covering over with a patch. No matter how good that patch is, it won't work. Simon, when he was preaching last week, warned us of the person who he'd known who for years had continued in church, 
but had covered up his sin. Sadly, he didn't know the power, the freedom of forgiveness. And unconfessed sin can just eat and eat and corrode and corrode away inside us, can't it? And it's so shameful that perhaps we feel like it's better off just to hide it. Well, Jesus says no. No patch, no matter how good, no matter how new, can do it. It's a cure we need, not a cover-up. Well, what about the second parable, verse 37? And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But again, Jesus is not just handing out advice to the budding brewers among us, no. Uh, Jesus is speaking of a time when, before bottles, wine would be poured into wine skins. And as the wine, as the new wine fermented, it would give off gas, and the skins would stretch. But if you take already stretched skins and you put more new wine in them and they stretch even further, they burst. They and the wine is ruined and is destroyed. And Jesus warns us, saying, don't be like old wineskins. So you and I can fill up on church and growth groups and prayer triplets and conferences and sermons and giving and but we need to be new wineskins. We need to be changed. That's his point. We need to be changed to receive the new wine of the forgiveness that we really need. I can think of a time, of the time that I became a Christian and first felt this forgiveness. I was 18. And I had lived all my life calling myself a Christian right through my teenage years, going to church, reading the Bible in church, a leader in the youth group. And yet at weekends, after dark, I would be a different person. Someone else that others who thought they knew me didn't know. I felt sick. I could go into detail, but I won't. This is being recorded, but you can ask me later. I felt sick. Sick with guilt. I couldn't do it. I didn't know what it was. But whatever it was, I couldn't do it. And then someone, someone told me that Jesus came to forgive sinners, to forgive it. That he died to take away guilt, to take away shame. And would I like to give my life to Jesus? Would I? Would I at that point? And I repented. I began with a changed direction, a new life. And when I did, I realised how good it is to receive the forgiveness that comes from repenting of sin, the cure of his forgiveness. And I still sin, every Christian does, but we enter into a life of repentance. And everyone who's a Christian, this is what we do when we sin. What do we do? We, We go to Jesus, we confess our sin, we say what we've done, We acknowledge it, we own it, and we repent of it in the sure knowledge and conviction of his forgiveness. See, repentance, not a cover-up, is the cure for sin. 
Of course, there'll be all sorts of individual responses, won't there? I hope there will be a passage like this, but I think there are things that we can apply together as a church. I've I've got just two, two to think about. And because it's for all of us to think about, I think it's for all of us to try and put into practice. The first is, well, how do we encourage a healthy church culture here at Wall Street of acknowledging and confessing sin? This, after all, is one of the safest places, safest spaces on the planet, isn't it? A bunch of people who also know that they're sinners, a bunch of people who have no right or reason to judge because we know what we're like on the inside. Well, how do we encourage a healthy culture of this? I think the first thing is that we, when we gather, we remind one another of the goodness of God. We could talk about the coffee, We could talk about the heat. We could talk about the greatness of God, though, couldn't we? And remind one another and just give each other permission to say, yeah, because of the greatness of God, I don't need to hide, for he's a God who forgives sin. He's a God who came for sin. It's not saints. He knows what we're like. And we help one another to do that. And here's the second, as a culture that will help, I think we can be more honest about our sin with one another. That's going to involve someone being brave, taking the first step in a conversation maybe. I I tried this out in in a conversation at, at college this week. But it's not brave, actually. It's the kind of faith that Jesus was talking about in the previous passage the kind of faith that makes you well. When we say, it's not about me. I don't have to rest on what people think about me because it's what God thinks about me. And he sent his son, Jesus, to die for me. I have nothing to prove and nothing to hide. How can we do that? Of course, I'm not talking about uh, bringing out a big tablet of our sins each week to show everyone. That's not edifying. But it might be that there's someone that you know well, someone in your growth group, Uh, a Bible study, a a member of staff, or someone you know well at church, that it's good to not have to hide behind the guilt and the weight of unconfessed sin. That's something to think about. How do we as a church have a culture of acknowledging God's grace among us? For Jesus has come to bring a cure, not a cover-up. Which leads us on to the third and final parable. It's a short parable, and it's told to the person who says, I don't need to do that. I don't need to change. I'm fine on my own. Verse 39. No one, Jesus says, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. And to understand this, we need to picture the old man outside his own vineyard. Before him stretches his vineyard as far as the eye can see. And the vineyard represents his life's work. There are the buildings which he has built. There are the vines which he has cultivated. And in his cellar are the bottles that he has cellared. And day after day, he drinks his own wine. His own wine, which to him is good. Except it's not It's vinegar, it's poison, it's diesel. And yet he doesn't know any better. 
This is the man who day after day looks at his life and says, it's good, I don't need anything else, I don't need to change. But he didn't know how good real wine is. It's like going down to the, you call them bottle shops, don't you? Going down to the bottle shop and buying a 50 cent bottle of wine. Yuck. Yuck. When you could have a 5,000 bottle of the best Bordeaux claret. Why stick with making ourselves righteous when we can have the beauty of the righteousness of Christ? Don't be like that sad, sick old man who thinks, I know best and I don't need a change. So three quick questions as we finish. What if I don't know my sin? Or there's sin I haven't named. Well, that's why we have the general confession in church. You know, it's not like Jesus only, conf- only forgives the sin that we name. No, Jesus knows our hearts. But we have a general confession, which we say altogether regularly, to put us in the posture of a life on our knees to God. And Jesus taught us, didn't he, in the Lord's Prayer, to pray regularly, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Asking for forgiveness is good. Second question, what if I don't know about the sin in my life? Well, that's a good question. And we can ask God to show us our sin, those blind spots, those faults, those specks in our eyes. Third, and importantly, what if I'm scared of confessing my sin? What if I'm scared? Well, Jesus knows, Jesus cares, and Jesus can. Jesus knows. He knows that already, so he's not going to be taken by surprise. He's not going to be, oh, I've changed my mind. No, he knows, and he wants us to come to him. Second, he cares. He came for sinners. Jesus died on a cross. How much does Jesus love you? This much. Third, he can. Jesus and Jesus alone has authority to forgive sins. So when we come to him, he won't throw it back in your face, but will give you the cure of forgiveness. And you know, we had Psalm 32 read earlier today. Thanks for reading that passage for us. Psalm 32 is in our Bibles to walk us through how we might do that, how we might go about confessing our sin and approaching a posture And so as we finish, I'm going to read this and then pray. You might like to listen to these words again from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped, as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Let's pray.
Here is a saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Lord, please help us to trust you, to forgive us when we acknowledge our sin, that you might forgive our guilt. Amen. Well, we're going to sing our song. The Musos are going to lead us. And it's a song that in the second verse, you might like to listen out for it.